Hello to all our listeners. Thank you for joining us today on episode 15 of our MMM podcast, Music is Medicine, Ask the Expert. MMM stands for Music Men's Minds, a nonprofit organization that began seven years ago. Founded by Carol Rosenstein and her late husband, Erwin Rosenstein, Music Men's Minds serves seniors suffering from neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, dementia, stroke, traumatic brain injuries, and PTSD. Carol began this organization when her late husband, Erwin, fell into the clutches of Parkinson's. Erwin's decline due to this neurodegenerative disease was steep, but music was the one thing that kept the joy alive. This is when Carol realized music is medicine, and Music Men's Minds was born. Enjoy episode 15. Welcome, Dr. Middleman. It's so great to be able to speak with you today. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your career? I'm educated as a psychiatric epidemiologist and have a doctorate in public health from Columbia University. And I uh, got involved in uh, the research in dementia because of a family story. And I became interested in whether it was possible to to improve the well-being of family caregivers of people with dementia and the people with dementia themselves. And uh, I was lucky enough after I had written a grant proposal just to do a survey of people caring for relatives with dementia, I was lucky enough to meet four women who were working at NYU Langone in the what's now the Alzheimer's Disease Center. And they were trying to help family caregivers. Um, and, and they were doing it through counseling and support, both of the caregivers and of the, entire, of the rest of the family. And I was impressed by what they were doing. And I decided it was important to find out whether I could, as an epidemiologist and a statistician, could I do a study that would demonstrate the effectiveness of what these people had developed as clinicians at NYU. So uh, I sat with them in a room for about an hour and I said to them, tell me what all these caregivers have in common so I can write a grant proposal. And they kept saying, caregivers have nothing in common. Every caregiver is different. I'm thinking, oh, well, how, how as a scientist am I going to put this together? But then I decided that, that actually was the theme. So the NYU caregiver intervention that we developed and studied for many years uh, has the theme that every caregiver is different. And uh, we do, we, the intervention includes a comprehensive assessment of the caregiver, uh, and he or she then uh, tells the the person who's doing the counseling, who in the family is important to him or her. Those people join family counseling sessions with the counselor. Then there's ongoing support through uh, what we call ad hoc counseling, calling the counselor when you need to, uh, and through joining support groups. And what we learned was that through six individual and family counseling sessions in a very short period of time within four months and ongoing support, we were able to make a huge difference in the lives of the family caregivers, including through the social support we provided, including reducing depression, reducing stress, improving 
physical health. And by improving the caregiver's well-being, we were able to postpone nursing home placement for caregivers in the study who received this intervention by a year and a half longer than the people in the group that did, that only got uh, regular care as it was available in the community. This was a huge, important finding, I think. Uh, and the as a result of the published scientific results of the study, we were able to replicate the intervention in states around the country and in other countries and translate it into in, in new randomized control trials uh, in the United States, Israel, uh, Australia, and England, among other places. So this was all about helping the family caregiver. And then one day I woke up and I thought, wait a minute, I'm helping the family caregiver. What about the person with the illness? We're helping him by helping the caregiver keep the person out of him out of a nursing home, but we're not helping him directly. And we interview the caregiver at our center in one room, and we interview the person with the dementia in the other room, but we send them out the door together. And I had a picture of us sending them out the door, having separated them. And how do we expect them to go home and enjoy being together when the person with dementia is losing many of the, of the faculties that help him or her communicate with the spouse or partner? So uh, I wrote another grant proposal to study a couple's counseling intervention that we developed where we put the couple in a room together uh, with a skilled counselor who treated them as equals. And in that setting, the person with dementia in the early to middle stages was able to communicate in a way that he or she could not in, in a setting where there was more stigma and where his having dementia got in the way of his performing at his best ability. And so that was our first study of couples or what we call scientifically dyads, uh, pairs of people. Um, and then uh, as a result of, of my involvement in the couple study, I was introduced to people at the Museum of Modern Art who had developed um, a safe place for people with dementia with their family members to view art when the museum was otherwise closed. And they asked me to do a study of that, of that uh, museum experience, which is called Meet Me at MoMA. And we were able to demonstrate that in that environment where the couples were treated as an important audience, not as somebody with an illness and someone who's their caregiver, the people with dementia had really interesting insights. And the people with dementia and the caregivers mood improved and their self-esteem improved and the communication with each other improved. And this was really, I, I was really impressed by these findings. And then I was in Washington at a conference and someone had been asked to present my, my Meet Me at MoMA data. I don't know how, she, how that happened, but she said, I didn't realize you were gonna be here. I want you to present it for me. Will you do that? I said, yes. She said, well, okay, well, in return, I want you to stand up in front of the audience and lead a part in a canon. I said, no. She said, no, this is, this is a trade. You get to present your work and then you have to stand up 
And this is a huge audience and a big auditorium and the people from the federal government, they're people from the NIH, they're a scientist, they're all kinds of people. No. And she said, oh, Mary, you, you can do it. I said, not really. Yes, you can do it. All you have to do is sing taco salad, taco salad, taco salad. I said, no. <laughs> well, <laughs> so of course I ended up doing it. And, and this was Taco Bell's canon that she had developed. And, uh, and I sang my part and I was facing the audience. Well, this was such an incredible experience. All of these serious, important people were smiling. They were singing, they were laughing, they were swaying and a light bulb went off in my head and wait, I have to start a chorus. This is so much better than anything else. And so I went home in, in the spring of 2011 and I started a chorus. We actually had our first rehearsal in June of 2011. And uh, we hired a conductor, an assistant conductor, and we used space in a church that, that had a music mission. And we had, the purpose of the chorus was not a sing-along, it was a serious chorus in which the people with dementia and their family members learned new songs during the rehearsals that they would perform at the concert at the end. Oh. And uh, it, was, it was an amazing experience. Some of the people, some of the scientists where I at NYU said, oh, well, those people will never learn new songs. This was in 2011. They'll never learn new songs. They have dementia. Well, they learned 18 new songs for every concert. And this was kind of a surprise. Now that they had the music and they had the words in front of them, they had their family member or, or close friend with them and everybody sang together. <clears throat> and sometime, sometime around the 11th rehearsal, I thought, you know what, I have private funding for this one little pilot study, but how can I abandon these people? So I went to the rehearsal and I said to them, if you're willing to to support this as much as you can, or as little as you know, provide a little bit of support, I will find a way to continue to run this chorus and get additional support. So that was in 2011 and the chorus is still singing together today. Uh, they named themselves the Unforgettables. Before the pandemic, they were doing at least three concerts a year. A second chorus was formed uh, also in New York City, um, that also calling themselves the Unforgettables in a different church with a music mission on the West Side. Uh, and uh, they continue to sing even during the pandemic, although they obviously couldn't um, give concerts on Zoom. But when the pandemic seemed to be winding down and it felt safe, they went back to uh, rehearsing for concerts again. And over the years, many, many dyads, pairs, either husband and wife or father and daughter or, or sometimes close friend or family member, uh, and sang to sing together. <laughs> and among the things that both annoys me and gratifies me is that people who come and watch the concerts almost inevitably ask me which one of those people has dementia because they can't tell. Well, I wish they didn't care, 
but it's also interesting that they can't tell. And sometimes the people get up and dance spontaneously and uh, people with behavioral problems don't ever seem to have them when they are rehearsing or singing in the concerts. And the people perform at a, at a level of functioning that is, is sometimes much higher at, in the rehearsals than they can be any other time. So music is obviously providing a, a quality of life for them. Uh, we made a video in which one of the one of the people with dementia said she had to quit her job and she was really depressed. And then they joined the chorus and she said she goes home and she sings in her head and she sings in the shower. And she the, this chorus was a lifesaver for her. And I think this is something that we have to understand in the context of prescribing not only drugs, which may or may not have side effects, but also prescribing the arts and particularly music, but the other arts and other ways in which people can continue to enjoy life together with dementia. I could see you lighting up when you were talking about the effects and the things that you've observed. Um, so I was wondering if that passion is something that grew from your time throughout your career or if there was something that inspired you either related to dementia or music intervention before that? Well, I have to say that I enjoy my work and it's very gratifying to, to be able to prove scientifically that what the, what the clinicians uh, who were, were working at NYU before I even got there, what they had developed was effective. But it's even more enjoyable. And yes, I get passionate about <laughs> things that like singing, which we can all do. We can all enjoy together. And it brings smiles to everybody's face. Uh, and, and, and family members can view, the view their family member with dementia as a performer, not as a victim or as somebody to, you can't communicate with. And that's just special. I mean, people come out of their shells. They're less depressed. They're they're uh, communicating in a in a powerful way that that I don't think there's a culture on earth cannot cannot understand and do. Definitely, I view it as my dessert. Actually, I you know <laughs> I like that. Um, could you explain to us what is going on in the brain when someone is suffering from Alzheimer's-related dementia? That's a question. I, 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 I mean, I can tell you sort of vaguely, but I don't think I, I mean, this is something I can say. When somebody has dementia, there are things he or she can no longer do. And as the dementia progresses, depending on the kind of dementia, uh, there are more and more things that he might have done before that he might not be able to do now. But those are in the parts of the brain that we consider as Westerners traditionally to be important, reading, writing, arithmetic. But there's another part of the brain, the part that can get involved in the arts. And I've had many anecdotal experiences in which people who are in the middle stages of dementia with Alzheimer's disease or other dementias who can't necessarily be lawyers anymore or the other things that they used to do. And they maybe didn't even know that they could sing. 
But the part of the brain that is less quickly affected by dementia in almost of any almost any kind is the part that can perform, that can enjoy music, that can do, can make art, that can take photographs. Those parts are much more slowly affected. So there's an example, it's actually in the video we made of our original chorus, a man named Leonard. And uh, he was asked by the conductor to, to perform a solo. And I went to the concert and I heard him perform and I went up to him afterwards and I said, Leonard, where did you study singing? And he said, I didn't. I never sang till I got dementia and joined your chorus. And he was a soloist in every concert for about three years until um, he died of something else not related to the dementia. It sounds like a very effective psychosocial intervention. What are sort of the neurological and behavioral changes that you can see through long practice of these music and social spaces? What I see, and which I can't really explain, and I think we need to do research, I think it's essential that we do a lot of research in this area to understand better what's happening. But in the moment, what's obvious is that the behavioral disturbances that we see elsewhere in their lives don't seem to happen while they're in the chorus, that people are learning. Supposedly they can't learn, but they do learn when there's music behind it. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what the exact neurologic uh, causes of the, this new ability, or maybe it's a temporary ability. We don't even know for how long it lasts, the joy that people get from singing or from playing an instrument. Uh, it isn't clear that that joy necessarily lasts much beyond the moment. But isn't it wonderful that people can have those moments? I'd like to study how long we can prolong those moments. Are there ways in which we can prescribe music that will be effective for longer? Uh, we prescribe all kinds of drugs. We figure out what's the right dose. And then we prescribe that dose. I'd like to do a study of music to see whether uh, more of it is has a or longer amounts of it or more frequent amounts of it or homework assignments in music or whatever can can improve the quality of life of the person with dementia. What we do see is it's a place where the person and his family can have joy together. And if you were to conduct research on it, do you think you would want to look at learning new songs or practicing old songs? Do you think it makes a difference? Well, people have said that music makes it possible to remember their past, to the, the songs from their childhood. But we actually have seen in our, in our chorus, which has people from many backgrounds, and we try to include songs from all their backgrounds so they don't all remember the songs from their childhood. They're, they're, they're learning new songs. I think to see that is very important. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not quite the same as, as re recovering old memories. It's, it's an accomplishment. Mm -hmm. So circling back to the caregiver piece, 
Um, what role are they playing in these music spaces? And can this role improve their quality of life as well as their relationship with the person they're caring for? Well, the research that we conducted, which was published in International Psychogeriatrics in 2020, showed that both the people with dementia and their caregivers experienced significant improvements over the 13 weeks of rehearsal in their mood, in their self-esteem, in their quality of life. So it had a positive effect on both. And uh, I think that's, it, it's very different than a sing-along where you drop somebody off for an hour and a half in a place where, uh, and then come back and pick them up. In, in our choruses with the person with dementia and the care, family member together, I think the experience of being together in a way that, and both learning something at the same time is wonderful for both of them. Have there been any roadblocks to conducting this type of research compared to studies that can be controlled in a lab environment or something like that? Uh, yeah, well, studying, yes, uh, we can do a before and after study and, and demonstrate the, the change in, in, uh, in men as we did. But uh, a, a, the gold standard study is a, a randomized control trial. What does that mean? It means that um, randomly people are assigned to either the hopefully active intervention or to a control group. When they study drugs, uh, especially in the early stages of studying the drugs, they study them in mice who are otherwise completely identical. And they randomly assign the mice to the act what they think is going to be an active drug and to a placebo. And the mice don't know what they're getting and they're otherwise completely the same. So if the drug has the teeniest effect, it's going to be statistically significant because there's no other difference among the mice. But we go to people and people are all different from each other. And so you need a much more powerful intervention to have a statistically significant difference between a treatment group and a control group. But if it's a drug again, and the drug is put in a little flask or bottle, and there's a number on it, and neither the person getting the drug nor the person administering the drug knows whether that the drug is it's an active drug or a placebo, then you, you still, if there's any difference between the two groups, at the end of a, of a period of taking the drug, you can attribute the difference to the drug. Well, how do you do that with music or with any of the psychosocial interventions we've developed? If you put a person in a, in a control group and say, you're not gonna get anything and we're gonna measure you for and four months later, why would they come back? So everybody know, knows that the pe person giving the intervention and the person receiving it knows which group they're in. So that makes it much, much harder to show statistical significance. Even in our original NYU caregiver intervention study that I, that I described earlier, we had to give a lot to the control group. Why? Because if the control group disappeared, we wouldn't have any data. Mm -hmm. So we gave a lot of support to the treatment group and we gave almost as much support to the control group. The control group didn't get what I think is the active ingredient of that intervention, which was family counseling. 
And so now I can say, because there was a huge difference between the two groups, it must be the family counseling because it's the one thing the control group didn't get. Now, what do you do with music? This is a, a bit baffling because you can't say you can be in the chorus or you can just wait. Well, maybe you can. That's one design. You have what's called a weightless control design. And you say, well, I have only so many spaces and some people can come into the chorus now and some people will wait four months and we'll admit them to the chorus then and we'll see if the people who were in the chorus for four months have changes that are not uh, that are attributable then to the music compared to the people who were not in the chorus. Mm -hmm. Or you can have an intervention that provides social support. There's an even better study. You have the music in the chorus and then you have another intervention that provides a lot of social support, but no music. And if you can show that the chorus is better than the other social support, then you can attribute it to the music. Or you could imagine a design in which you have listening to music in one group and performing in the next group and maybe a third group that has no music at all. And, uh, and you hope that you'll find a significant difference uh, in, in favor of the, of the performing music. These would be very expensive studies, which I think is why they, one of the reasons they haven't been done yet, because you have to get enough people to be involved to have a significant effect when the differences among people are so great that you have to have a bigger effect than the, uh, than the effect of the differences themselves. So I thought it was really incredible that we showed that after being in the chorus for 13 weeks, we, we had a significant effect. That's the beginning of the scientific evidence. But the gold standard would be if we could show that was better than anything else. Mm -hmm. And we talked about this a little before, but how widely used would you say that music is within the healthcare system? And are there ways we can integrate it further? Well, there's a, there's a, a new jargon called social prescribing. And they're talking about prescribing the possibility of prescribing the arts. But for physic physicians um, in our country are not trained to provide or, or prescribe comprehensive care. I think we have a huge uh, job ahead of us still to, to um, get both the people who are being prescribed the medicine and the people prescribing it to understand the value of the arts as much as the value of a drug or maybe more. And of course, it's obvious, I think, that very few negative side effects can occur from singing. Uh, maybe the audience doesn't enjoy listening, but the, certainly the people singing will have very few negative side effects. And it's hard to say that about any drug. So even if it does it, it, what the Hippocratic Oath says, at, 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 best new, do, at worst do no harm, right? Uh, I don't think music does much harm. And the drugs that we develop, there's a balance between the side effects and the benefits. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there's much less of a, a funding for studying the arts in dementia because what are we selling? At the end of the day, if you manage to, to prove that a drug is effective, you've got a market and you can sell it. 
And we have not got a market in the same sense because essentially we're giving it away, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And you read my mind about the funding thing because I was going to ask about that next. Um, do you feel like it would be not as difficult to get funding if physicians were properly trained in implementing these strategies, if it was more commonplace? Physicians, I think physicians have to become, should be made aware of the positive impact, uh, both on the person with dementia and on the family of all of the psychosocial interventions that I described and others that, that have been developed. Uh, I, I think that's it should be part of physician education uh, so that the younger physicians uh, coming up as well as part of CME courses so that the practicing physicians become more aware of the positive impact of these of these interventions. And then the nihilism that so many people feel that nothing can be done can be combated with the things that we have observed, as I said before, don't have many negative side effects and could have positive benefits. So I think even if there is an effective drug, I can't imagine a reason not to provide the arts in addition. And within the arts or beyond, what are some other meaningful activities beyond singing that can help seniors improve their quality of life and cognitive ability? I think I think that it depends on the person. I think music is pretty universal. Excuse me, music is pretty universal. Uh, listening to music may be less effective, but certainly it's enjoyable. I think anything we can do to bring joy to people that doesn't cause harm should be included in their lives. And it's not easy to know in advance what that is. I mean, Leonard didn't know he could sing until he joined the chorus. But there's also dance, there's yoga, there's there's meditation, there's uh, there's painting, there's sculpting. There's a man, there was a man who who was a lawyer and couldn't practice law anymore because uh, his law partners no longer wanted him around because he had dementia. And it turned out he went to a photography class that we ran and he was a brilliant photographer. He didn't know that before. And so he had years of enjoyable life walking around New York City taking what I personally thought were museum quality photographs. Wow. So every individual has the, has some capacity that could be encouraged that he could enjoy. I met a man in Vermont who was a bicycle rider and he had dementia and his wife was concerned that he go that he be off by himself and also got to the point where he couldn't get on the bicycle by himself anymore. But she found a young bicycle bicyclist, cyclist who was willing to help him get on the bike and ride with him. So he got the joy of riding his bicycle. And I think what we really need to try to do is to uh, to improve quality of life in whatever ways people individually can can find enjoyable. And we don't necessarily know that until we try them. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, I have many examples of people who did like Leonard and, and the other person who was a photographer until he died also, uh, who, who didn't know that they had these abilities. Mm-hmm. So being able to actually foster or, or provide a menu of choices for people with dementia, uh, I think is, is a, a real, a really wonderful gift. And the NYU family support program that I now run with funding from the state of New York um, gives me the opportunity to provide these interventions uh, through to the family members and the people with dementia. So we have a recreational therapist who, who runs a place for us, which is uh, for people in the early to middle stages of dementia. She's also an artist, so it's an arts-based uh, group that meets uh, it was meeting several times a week in person, but during the pandemic, it met, I think, every single day. Uh, people join it. Some people do collages. Other people do painting. Other people do other kinds of art. And and they experience the joy of also being in the group together. Even on Zoom, being together was part of the experience. And the art was another part of it. So I think many of these interventions that we're developing have more than one active ingredient. It's the lack of stigma of being with other people without worrying about whether someone's going to notice that you do something wrong. And it's also the positive experience of of being with other people that we all enjoy. And it's the arts. That's why it's my dessert. Thank you. Well, that's it for my questions. I'd love to open it up to Carol to ask anything that you'd like to to Dr. Middleman. Mm. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Dr. Middleman. My gosh, I am just elated sitting here listening to the stories coming from the horse's mouth, if you will. Mary, (laughs) I've read so much about you, but to hear you actually presenting these ideas and stories personally fills me up with such gratitude. And yes, you know, um, my uh, hindsight is 2020 now. I've been sitting in this chair for nine years and discovering things on my own. <clears throat> and to hear that this is all part of your history, what I've been seeing is already documented by Mary Middleman. And uh, as a caregiver for 15 long years with my Irwin, we found the music when he was 10 years into his 15-year journey. If we hadn't found the music, I don't think I would be sitting here today as the rock for my Irwin without the music. And so um, truly, I'm, I'm here as such a proponent of pushing the arts, including the music, um, so that everybody can get the goodies, get the dessert that you speak of, because that's one dessert table. So I'm curious, Mary, uh, you and I have spoken for years about your um, wanting to start a small music group of early diagnosed musicians who have dementia. 
and you were considering starting the small music group to be able to show that making music can actually forestall the progression of the disease. Am I presenting this correctly? Because it really tweaked my curiosity and here I am today to find out what your next step is. Well, uh, I think I think it's I, I think that what we have demonstrated, both you and I with people with dementia and music, suggests that it's possible that in a nurturing environment that people with dementia, whether they were musicians or not, that being in this environment and learning new songs, learning new pieces uh, and performing may, may be a kind of stimulation to the brain that, that, that either forestalls some of the decay or decline or even maybe creates new neural connections. We don't have this. We don't have the data to back that up yet. Mm-hmm. But I, uh, I think that it's worth studying because there's no there's no downside to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, for me, this would be such important findings to continue to add to the dessert table. And uh, yes, I mean, we see people who've been put out to pasture and the society has really ended their lives prematurely. If it were not for the ability for the patient to enjoy all of the artistic goodies that we speak about. So, So I have a very basic lay person uh, question for you. In my findings that are certainly lay findings, as I work with many, many music groups and many, many people with neurodegenerative diseases, we know that there are music storage cells that actually start proliferating six months in utero and that these music storage cells are responsible for the ability of this community of people to reach back memory-wise, knowing lyrics, music, taking a guitar out of the garage, dusting it off and getting back into the rhythm of life, which is our hang tag. And my question to you is, can you tell us a little more about these memory storage cells. Are they just regular old cells that do work and and are hardier than others? I mean, I hear the word that the memory storage cells are hardier. They're sprinkled around the brain like stars that to be able to keep somebody moving ahead musically or artistically because of the quality of the cell. I mean, maybe this is a question for um, another researcher, but do you have do you have any feeling about the, the, the quality of the, of the memory storage cell and why it's so relied upon? You know, I don't know the answer to that question, but I do think that it's 
perhaps a hint of an answer is that there is, as far as I can tell, nobody in no racial or ethnic group around the world that doesn't have music in their lives. So it's a, obviously a common bond among all human beings. Beyond that, that's not my kind of science. Okay. Well, I, I remain curious about the quality of the cell, and I'm going to just have to keep asking to get my answer. <laughs> but that, to me, is one of the, the miracles upon which our platform rests, that somehow these music storage cells can be called upon. I know with my beloved Irwin, during his busy time of actual dying, that I would go into the room in the morning with my shakers and put on the music and sing and dance the dancing queen. And here he was almost ready to cross over and he would hear the rhythm and he would wake up and his hands would start to move in rhythm under the sheets. Then came the knees up higher, higher. You know, the traditional rolling over and giving your beloved a hug and wishing them a beautiful day <clears throat> was not what I was experiencing, but I was having the luxury of dancing with my dying guy as he was in the midst of dying. And, and, and so I'm just really struck by the miracle of the brain being able to keep on keeping on even into the late stages of the dying process. And, and, and that really remains one of the biggest miracles and the gifts for me as a caregiver <laughs> to be able to talk about these amazing stories with so much joy. And, and, and it's just part of this exciting journey that you are leading us on. And I want you to know from us at Music Men's Minds how grateful we are to you to be able to share your backstory and to know that you're still on the front line looking to see what's next so that you can add another item to the dessert table. I just love the metaphor because <laughs> I love desserts. Carol, I just want to thank you for inviting me uh, I, uh, to this platform and thank you for Music Men's Minds and all of the efforts you're making to improve the lives of so many people with dementia. Mm, thank you, Mary. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been a privilege. It's been a joy, um, especially to enjoy some dessert with you this morning. <laughs> so thank you for your time. And Katie, thank you for hosting as you do. Have a glorious day. Thank you so much for joining us today on Music is Medicine, Ask the Expert. You've heard some amazing research findings and we're so grateful that you were able to come on today and share your knowledge with us. Thank you to our listeners for joining us today. If you'd like to learn more about Music Men's Minds, please visit our website at www.musicmensminds.org. If this is a cause that you'd like to support, please consider donating to Music Men's Minds. We accept donations through our website. Again, www.musicmensminds.org. Thank you again to Dr. Mary Middleman for joining us today, and we'll see you next time.